Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today's episode is talking about chapter 9. And the title of that is Denying That God's Past Knowledge is Fixed. And we've been talking about over the past little while, we, we established an argument B, and we've tried to establish that infallible foreknowledge is not compatible with libertarian free will. And then we have been kind of going over that argument, trying to make sure that it is, in fact, sound. And so what we're doing is addressing some of the attacks that people have made over the years to this argument. And last time we talked about entailment, for example. And this time another attack that people make on it is denying that God's past knowledge is fixed. And you'll recall God's past knowledge being a fixed event in history is one of the main cruxes for the incompatible argument. Because if God has a belief in a past moment about a future event, then because the past is fixed, when we get to that future event, there is no alternative, at least based on the arguments we've made. So the main attack from, or not the main attack, but like the main school of thought or leader of the school of thought here is William Occam. And he's famous for his Occam's razor, which most people have probably heard of, you know, just the simplest answer is usually the most correct one, or I guess that's what we usually think of it as. But I just want to read this little quote from the book about him. It says, William Occam responded to the incompatibilist argument by denying its most fundamental and seemingly incontrovertible premise, that if God believed at all past times that a person would do an act at a future time, then it is beyond the power of anyone to change this fact about the past. Occam maintained that such propositions are merely verbally about the past but are in reality about the future, and therefore do not partake of the necessity of the past. That is, Occam would deny that premise B4 of argument B is true. What was the premise B4 again, just to remind us? Premise B4 is the assertion that we don't have power to change God's past belief. That's simple. Okay. So there you go. Before we go further into that, where is he coming from here? How can he deny that the past is fixed? Well. He's coming from two directions. One, he's basically Aristotelian, and so he looks at things in terms of actuality and potency. And what he's saying is that even though God knew something in the past, I still have a potency to bring it about or not bringing it about. That is, I have a basic power to do that. And so this is verbally not about the past. It's verbally about the future. And thus, it doesn't partake of the necessity of the past because it's dependent on what occurs in the future and the powers that exist in the future. He's also reflecting the Aristotelian view that we have to make this kind of a distinction in order to avoid fatalism, because essentially Aristotle had a fatalist argument, and I think he's looking at avoiding that. But he also wants to avoid the kinds of implications that arise from the doctrines of predestination and reprobation. There's double predestination. God both chooses who is going to be saved and who's going to be damned. Or single predestination, God chooses who's going to be saved and just leaves all the rest he doesn't choose to be damned. It's kind of a distinction without a difference, but that's the difference. And if God decrees in the past that you're going to be saved, then you're going to be saved. If he decrees that you're going to be reprobated, you're going to be reprobated. And Oakham wanted to argue that those are not necessary because they're verbally about the future and only nominally about the past. That's his position. And therefore, the propositions as we deal with them and their truth value, don't have the kind of necessity that we would like to argue they have because they're about past events. Let's move into the next section here, and Jacob's going to talk about distinguishing between logical and theological fatalism. So if you could start out by just kind of talking about fatalism in general, although we just kind of covered some of it there. Yeah, Dad, if you could, fatalism. Sure. Fatalism is the belief that the future is fixed, it can't be changed, and it's fixed as a matter of simply the nature of truth. So, given the fact that I have a proposition that asserts what's going to happen in the future, the proposition has a truth value. And so, if I assert that I'm going to rob a 7-Eleven in 2020, 
that's either true or false right now. And if it's true or false, it's one or the other. If it's true, I can't change the fact that it's true. And if it's false, I can't change the fact that it's false because the truth value is fixed. And given the notion of omnitemporality of truth, that is, propositions have a truth value at every given time, but the truth value is immutable. It doesn't change. It's either true or false already. Given that it's true or false already, it appears that assertions about what's going to happen in the future have a past necessity about them, even though it's just simply asserting what's going to happen in the future. And so in the book, I give an argument where I take all of the premises and I simply drop the beginning of the premise saying that God believed that and just assert. So premise D1 is that it's always been true that rock will rob the 7-Eleven tomorrow. D2, if it has always been true that rock will rob the 7-Eleven tomorrow, then it's not in anyone's power to do any act which entails that rock will not rob the 7-Eleven tomorrow. So already, if we're saying that it has a truth value and it's not in anyone's power to change that truth value, then it appears that we've just recreated the argument. And we don't have to even have the existence of God. All we have to have is the notion that propositions have a truth value at the time that we assert them, and fatalism follows, which would surely be an unwelcome result for everybody who believes in free will, at least libertarian free will. And Occam distinguished between the propositions of either being merely true or false and those propositions that are determinately true or false. Right. He's distinguishing between propositions about God's knowledge which appear to be about the past, but he asserts are in fact about the future because that's when the actor potency takes place that, that determines the truth value of that proposition. Whereas the mere assertion of the proposition is not about the past in any way. So neither God's foreknowledge nor true or false propositions entail what we would call fatalism. And we can just call this logical fatalism, the notion that you have to accept fatalism if you simply accept the rules of logic. That's why it's called logical fatalism. And so he's arguing that neither argument is valid because the propositions at issue are really about the future and not about the past. And therefore, it is within a person's power because there's still potency to change the truth value that in this sense, it's within a person's power to change whether or not the act occurs. Okay. And Occam apparently did not believe that God's knowing the truth of a proposition constituted a historical event. And that'll become relevant later as we describe you know, what exactly something actually being a historical event. Yeah, that has been the focus of the modern discussion of what we may call, it, this is known essentially as a soft past, a past that doesn't entail anything about the future. So we have soft facts. So for instance, if I assert I'm going to rob the 7-Eleven on May 20th, 2020 at 5.01 p.m. and 30 seconds past, then I've asserted a very specific act that is going to take place at a time. But the mere fact that the fact has a truth value, I think it's fairly easy to see that it really doesn't have any past historical fact that grounds it. It's just an assertion, and it seems to be wholly about the future. And so the philosophers that have adopted what I'm going to call the alchemist approach have set out to distinguish which facts are truly about the future, which facts are about the past, and, and tell the fixity of the past in such a way as to entail also the fixity of the future. And so there were a number of philosophers who set out to describe criteria that could be used for making that kind of a determination. Okay. And we'll get a little bit more into to hard facts and soft facts in, in just a moment. But going back to this argument D that you mentioned, the D2, the second part there, if it has always been true that Rock will rob the 7-Eleven tomorrow, then it is not now in anyone's power to do any act which entails that Rock will not rob the 7-Eleven tomorrow, you bring up a big flaw there in that, you know, if we replace Rock with Osler, with, with you, you still have the power to refrain from robbing the 7-Eleven tomorrow, or you can make it true. So you can render either proposition true without changing the past history of the world. Right. Nothing in the past changes. I mean, the difference is if I assert that God knew in 1900 that I was going to rob the 7-Eleven in 2000, in order to refrain from robbing the 7-Eleven, I have to change a past fact about the history of the world. But if I simply refrain from robbing the 7-Eleven, then all I've really done is shown that it turns out at that particular time that the proposition uttered in the past had the truth value at the time that it either became true or false. There's no past history of the world that has to be changed in order for me to either refrain or for me to, in fact, do the act. 
which seems to be the important distinction between assertions about God's foreknowledge and mere logical assertions that have a present truth value about what will occur in the future. And so it seems to me that the argument for fatalism, there, and there are a number of people who have asserted the argument for fatalism and accepted it. Richard Taylor is one. He's a modern philosopher who wrote a number of beginning books that are used widely in philosophy. Aristotle's another. So there's some very bright people who've accepted this argument. However, it's beyond me why they would, because I think the distinction is clear and, and fairly obvious as to the difference between having to change a past act to have the power in question and simply bringing about the truth or falsity of a proposition at the time an act is done. Excellent. Now, moving on, we're going to talk about Bruce Reichenbach again and his view on this. And he says the objector contends that no one has power to act so that the past would be different than it was, which is more or less what we were just talking about there. You go on to say that you writing a paper in 2001, that if we say God knows at all past times I will write a paper in 2001, it's relationally dependent on my free act of writing this paper in 2001 in the same way that the truth of a proposition of Martin Luther being born 517 years before I write this paper is dependent on my free act of writing the paper in 2001. That's right. What he's doing is comparing two types of propositions. I have the power to bring it about freely that if I'm writing in 2001, I was, mm -hmm. that it's true that I wrote 517 years before Martin Luther was born. So I have the power to bring about the truth value. You mean after? Yeah. Did I say before? Yeah. Well, I was thinking of pre-existence, so yeah. I guess... Well, what you're thinking of, he was born 517 <laughs> years before he wrote the paper, but... Right, he was born yeah. 517 years before I wrote the paper. But I can bring about the truth of a proposition in the past. I'm free to act in such a way that the truth value is determinate when I do it. But it seems to me that there's a, a distinction, again, the same distinction I've made. It seems to me, and here's Reichenbach's argument, the truth value of the proposition, he says, is quote-unquote relationally dependent on what my free act is. So if I had refrained from writing the paper, God would have known that. And if I had written the paper, God would have known that instead. And so there's this two-way relation. It's not merely the fact that I have this fixed past fact that has to change. God's knowledge is dependent. That is, my act is logically prior to what God knows because God's knowledge of what I do is dependent on what I do. Hark back to all the problems of simple foreknowledge, because Reichenbach mm -hmm. accepted simple foreknowledge. It means God can't use his knowledge in any way to providentially get involved in the world. He's just stuck with what he sees. But beside that problem, he's saying, look, it still results in the fact that the truth value of this proposition is really about the future, not about the past, because God's knowledge is actually dependent on what I do. And what I do is logically prior to what God knows, because what God knows is dependent on what I do, not the other way around. And so he would say God's knowledge is a soft fact. It's a soft fact about the past because it depends on what occurs in the future. And so he argues that the necessity of the past does not apply to God's knowledge. And then, Corey, I'll go ahead and pass it back on you if we could start by going over hard facts and soft facts and then moving forward. Okay. So the proponents of this view try to say, yeah, those things about the future that are not things that they call hard facts are those that are merely verbally, meaning they're just like when we talk about them about the past, but there is an omnitemporality of truth. And going back just a little bit, you say that the premise D2 is not true, and therefore that whole argument D is not sound. So what makes D2 not true in your view? Just the, just the fact that you have two options, basically, or, or what? Well, you don't have a past historical fact that partakes of the necessity of the past that would be transferred to the, the future act. So in the mere proposition that Rock will rob the 7-Eleven tomorrow, there's no past fact that has to be changed whether he robs or doesn't rob. And so the kind of necessity of the past that is the bedrock of the argument doesn't apply to arguments about mere logical fatalism. And so the argument is logically invalid again for the same reasons that Augustine's argument was invalid. If it's true or false now that I will rob the 7-Eleven tomorrow, then what grounds that? We have to talk about what is our theory of truth, 
And what I simply want to say is, for propositions like this, I don't think they have a truth value until we do our free act. The truth isn't that that Rock will rob the 7-Eleven or that he won't rob the 7-Eleven. The truth is he might rob the 7-Eleven or he might not rob the 7-Eleven. And so we have might propositions rather than definite conditional propositions. And what that means is if it's truly a contingent matter, then it might or might not occur. That's what makes it contingent. And so what I'm going to say is that the logical laws of the excluded middle and bivalence, which philosophers use to apply to determining whether or not there's a truth value to a a proposition, one that has to be either true or false. Bivalence says this proposition has to be either true or false. And the excluded middle says that the proposition itself either has to be true or false. So what we're dealing with are logical rules. And I'm more than happy to give up both rules with respect to mere propositions about what's going to happen in the future because they don't have the right tense. They're just a a logical mistake about what's entailed in the future contingent, in my view. Okay, no, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you there, but we let's acknowledge that this view does assume the A theory of time, which we've talked about before. Then the other view would assume the B theory of time, that everything already exists. It's just our relative view to it, but we already talked about that. Actually, when we get to the end, we're going to apply essentially a B theory to the propositions, and but we'll talk about it at that point. All right. So when they're talking about these hard facts and soft facts, hard facts are things that are actually about the past, and soft facts are things that are merely verbally about the past, like we've been talking about. So the kind of like a litmus test they created for this is, I'll just read this as, to get a hard fact or one that is a necessary actual fact about the past and not just merely verbally about the past. They came up with this thing that says, if you establish a set of facts consistent with the world ending after the event occurs. So it says clearly, if a fact is consistent with the world ending after it occurs, then it is not about the future. It is a historical event, really about the past. Now, let's see, we have a few examples here, which I guess we'll jump to. So... Well, before we do that, do you want to define hard fact and soft fact anymore? Well, that's the whole point. A number of philosophers set out then to try to find a criteria that would determine which propositions are truly about the past or have what you call a hard part that can't be changed and so entail the necessity of the past. And those which are merely verbally about the past but are in fact about the future with respect to their truth value. And so what they're doing is looking at a criteria and saying, look, if I establish a criteria about what is about the past, then I can then determine whether assertions and propositions about what God knows in the future based upon his foreknowledge are about the past and therefore partake of past necessity, or whether they're merely verbally about the past and actually about the future. So they develop these criteria to come up with the determination as to what's about the past and what ain't. Okay, let me just clarify that a little more. So with definition, so... Again, hard fact is some event that would could occur, and if the world stopped and ceased to exist after that, it would still be a true fact, such as, I was born in 1983. If the world ended tomorrow, that fact is still true. But a fact such as, I will kick a dog in 2022. Well, even if I state that now, and it becomes a past fact, now that that moment has passed, that entails that the world exists at least until that moment in time. Otherwise, that's how they define a soft fact, meaning that it entails some other contingent fact occurs at a later time. Right. The question is, so we have, you know, assertions that are clearly about the future, like, you know, I'm going to go to Yellowstone in 2020, and then those which are clearly about the past. I was born in 1957. Those we don't have any problem with. The ones we have the problem with are, it's true that I'm going to write tomorrow words that are written exactly 59 years and some months after I was born, and I bring it about. Is that fact about the past or about the future? Because I'm saying that I'm, I'm now bringing about that it's true that I wrote this that amount of time after I was born. So I was born, it has a past fact about it, can't change that. But it's also about the truth value of what I do tomorrow. Is that particular assertion about the past or is that about the future? And when we look at it, we can simply say, well, it's actually about the future because I don't have to change the past in order to do it. But the question then is, well, is this proposition that God knows 
that I will do something tomorrow, say I will write a letter tomorrow, is the proposition God knew in 1900 that I was going to write that letter tomorrow, is that proposition really about the future, like the proposition that I bring about the truth value of the proposition that I write tomorrow exactly 59 years after I was born? Or is it really about the past, like the fact that I was just born in 1957? And so they come up with this criterion and say, well, if the proposition is consistent with no times after the event is said to have occurred so that the world could just end and the truth value isn't affected at all, then it seems that it's really not about the future because there's no future. But if it's consistent with there being a future, then it seems like it would be about the future and not about the past because it requires that there's a future beyond it. And so they adopted this as kind of a criteria. The problem is the criteria doesn't work when we look at propositions that we're trying to determine. So I'll give you three types of propositions. It was true in 1900 that rock would rob in 2020. The second proposition, God believed in 1900 that rock will rob in 2020. And see, Aaron told Moses in 24 BC that rock will rob the 7-Eleven in 2020. Let's apply the criteria to see how does it deal with those particular propositions. Is the fact that it's true in 1900 that rock will rob in 2020, is that consistent with no times after the time the statement is being made, that is today? And the answer is no, it requires a future. That means that's a soft fact, as it should be, because it's merely asserting something about the truth value proposition. The fact Aaron told Moses in 2000 BC that rock will rob the 7-Eleven at 2020. Does that entail a future? It doesn't because Aaron isn't infallible. And so the world could end after he said it, and he could be wrong or he could be right, but it doesn't really matter. He still said it. So that turns out to be a hard fact, as it should be. But then we look, God believed in, let's just say 1900, that rock will rob in 2020. Is that consistent with their no times after God believed that in 1900? The answer is no, because God's beliefs entail facts about the future. Therefore, they conclude, well, this is really about the future, not about the past, and so it has to be a soft fact. The problem is I can come up with a counterexample to this kind of a criterion. Let's say that God told Moses in 1900 that rock will rob in 2020. Is that consistent? No. Because the world will continue and God's infallible, so if he told Moses what's going to occur in 2020, it has to occur. The fact that God told Moses that has to be historical fact. It is a historical fact, and you can't change it. The criteria doesn't seem to capture our intuitions about what's in the past and what isn't, because it actually asserts the existence of a historical fact, and yet it says that that historical fact can be changed even though it's God who's asserting it. And so it doesn't really capture what we need it to capture. And what I'm doing is really responding to scholars who've come up with these criteria of saying, well, that means this is truly about the future. And I'm giving a counterexample and saying, well, I come up with this proposition about what God told Moses Rock would do in the future. And it turns out that should be a past fact, but it turns out to be a future contingent fact on your criteria. Therefore, your criteria is inadequate. It's just, it's just not an adequate criteria, and we need to reject it. That's the point of that exercise. And just to point out, when we were reading through the propositions there, everyone would agree that if Aaron, a fallible person, told Moses that this person would rob at a future date, then of course, him saying that is a past fact and you could cut off existence at that point and it would not change the fact that that was said. But what you just said is that if you just merely change Aaron out for God, somehow, in their mind, that makes it not a hard fact, then you're just pointing out that can't be the case. That doesn't make sense. Well, in fact, it's even worse than that. Not only is it a past fact, but God's infallible. He can't be wrong. It's more fixed than when Aaron says it. Not only is there the fact of the past fact that it was said, there's also the infallibility that it was said, which makes it so fixed that you can't change it. God can't be wrong. So it has to be more fixed than Aaron saying it. Yet on this criteria, it ends up that what God says is less certain, less fixed, less hard in the past than what Aaron says. And so what I conclude, and I think what most philosophers concluded reviewing this kind, is that as the discussion about these issues move forward, I think that most philosophers, almost all of them, dealing with this, began to turn away from the Occamist solution for this very reason. They saw that the criteria that they were developing really didn't work to categorize God's facts adequately. 
And in fact, I think it's one of the virtues of the book that I actually come up with a criteria that I believe accurately captures our intuitions about what is past and what is not. There was an endeavor that was taking place for 40 years, philosophers trying to find an adequate criteria. And I came up with a criteria that I think works to make the distinction. I'm proud that I did it because I think it withstands scrutiny. And there are a lot of, you know, very intelligent people working on it. And so I I guess I'm beating my own chest, tooting my own horn. Or if you got to toot your own horn, it probably ain't worth tooting. But anyway, that's, you know, what I did. Okay. Well, yeah, now we're going to kind of move into talking about that. But let's lay some groundwork here first. So a philosopher named Kvanvig stated, Perhaps for most persons, coming to believe a certain claim is normally an event. But not for God. He does not generally come to believe any truth. Rather, he has always believed that a claim is true, if it in fact is. So that's just going back to the belief that God does know and believe every true proposition, and they're claiming here that the you know future events are true or false propositions, like we've already talked about. What he's asserting is, you know, when I'm talking about Aaron saying something in the past, that ought to be a past fact. And here's the distinction. Let me make the distinction between the problem of prophecy and the problem of foreknowledge. If I say Aaron believed, this is Aaron, the brother of Moses, Aaron believed in 2400 that Jesus would come in the meridian of time, just assume. And if Aaron holds a belief 2400 years before it occurs, the fact that he has this belief has to be a historical fact. It's given. What Kvanvig wants to exploit is that the way that Aaron comes up with his beliefs has to be different than the way that God comes up with his beliefs, because he doesn't come up with his beliefs. It's his nature to know. He always knows. There's no time at which he comes to believe anything, and because Aaron has a beginning, there has to be a time at which he comes to have a belief. And so he's saying the way that Aaron believes things really isn't similar to the way that God believes things. What I did in the book is I changed the propositions to say, okay, well, let's not talk about beliefs then. Let's talk about Aaron spoke something. Aaron spoke and said a string of words at a particular time in the past. That has to be a historical fact. Aaron told Moses in 2400 that Rock would rob the 7-Eleven in 2020. That's a historical event. But if we say God told Moses, you know, you might say, well, God's speaking outside of time. He's not in our time frame. He, the way he speaks is different than the way we speak. But it really doesn't matter because there's still a hard fact here. There's a historical event. Moses heard God speak. And so the kind of distinction I think that Kavanvig wants to make is not one that will withstand scrutiny for the very simple reason that there are still these hard parts to the past event, and you just can't eradicate the past of its hardness or the fact that it's fixed easily. And if God speaks something, it ought to be more fixed, not less fixed, than if Aaron speaks it. And so it seems to me that the kind of approach that Kavanvig had is not one that works. Well, and Dad, you actually had a personal experience that kind of drives the point home about your friend in 1975 who would believe that he knew when Jesus would come again. Do you want to share that? Yeah, uh, he was a good man. I had a state president who actually said that uh, Jesus was going to come again. Now, he was wrong about Jesus coming. He said he was going to come by 1975, and he was speaking in the 1960s. I was a young boy. I was very impressionable. I remember him saying it. He has to come at least by 1975. Well, the fact he said that and said it in a state conference is a historical fact. You can't change that. You can't change the fact that he said it. Just turned out that it's false, and the fact that Jesus didn't come didn't change the past fact that he said it. It was about the future, but of course he could be wrong about the future, so it didn't have to change a past fact about it. Right, and then you even say that he comes back after it didn't happen, and he said he wants to change his belief so that he didn't hold that belief, but he couldn't do it. Yeah, exactly. He was later my seminary teacher. I really liked him. I want to emphasize that. But I approached him and said, do you remember when you were saying in this meeting that Jesus was certainly come by 1975? And I remember him saying, yeah, you know, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I could change the fact that I did. But how, how do you change that? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then you, you take that further and you say, in the same light, if God also held beliefs in 1975 about what Rock would do in 2004, then how can Rock change the fact that God held the belief in 1975? That holding a belief is a historical event, a concrete fact about history of the world which cannot be changed once the belief is in fact held. I can't do it, you can't do it, not even God can do it. Yeah, so the question then becomes, how do we categorize beliefs? Are beliefs events? Are they historical events? 
a human holding a belief is a historical event. There's no question. But those who are what I'm going to call more traditional Christians want to say is that, well, God's believing something really isn't an event. It's, you know, God holding a belief is so different from the way we hold beliefs that we really don't know how to categorize it. But however we categorize it, we shouldn't say that it's a historical event. But that's why I then changed it to what I call the problem of prophecy rather than the problem of foreknowledge. If God prophesies something at a specific time, then it becomes fixed. It becomes something that's truly about the past and has and is fixed in the same way that necessary propositions in the past are fixed. The bottom line is, is that the problem of prophecy can't be solved by the alchemist distinction because it involves these kind of historical events, and it raises the issue then. Okay, so we can't solve the problem of prophecy, let's just admit it. But maybe there's no problem with God's foreknowledge because the way that God believes things is so different from the way that humans believe things that we just can't compare them. And so it's really an appeal to mystery. We don't know how God believes things and what it means to say that God believes things. And so we really can't say whether it's an historical event or not that partakes of the necessity of the past. And this kind of goes on to what Zagzebski was, was talking about. And sorry, I kind of jumped in here. I'll go ahead and turn it back to Corey so, so he can go over uh, what Zagzebski suggests. Okay. Well, yeah, before we do that, I just wanted to read one thing because it's kind of important here to, well, just to introduce it. So to kind of piggyback off what you were talking about, this other quote here says, if God is put in the same class as mere humans, the incompatibility conclusion follows. If his uniqueness is preserved by placing him in a class all by himself, then the argument for incompatibilism is undermined. Further, the intuitive answer here is clear. There is nothing sufficiently like God for ontological purposes to be put in the same class as him. So, like you said, that's just kind of an appeal to mystery, saying, we don't know what God's like, but he's not like us, and so it's just different. But that doesn't make sense. But anyway, before we go over that further, I want to talk about Zagzebski, and she believes in, or she kind of came up with something called Thomistic Occamism, which kind of marries some of Thomas Aquinas's thought with this Occamist idea. And she has a like an analogy of a child's face reflecting the features of its father. Um, that was a little confusing for me, so could you kind of explain what she's trying to assert there and how that's relevant to this argument? Okay, so for Thomas Aquinas, God, remember, doesn't know anything because he knows something about the world because his senses have been acted upon because nothing acts upon God. And so the event occurring in the future is not logically prior to what God knows. What God knows is logically prior to the future occurring. But you have to remember that for Occam, all he's doing is looking at his own essence. God's looking at his own essence, and he sees in his own essence um, the truth value of propositions about what human beings are going to do. And so she uses this analogy. It's like God looking at his essence. He sees not merely the child. He also sees the father in the child. And this is her analogy to suggest that when he considers the, his choice to create us, God sees in his essence not merely his choice to create us, he also sees our free acts that we're going to do in the future. So what she wants to say, the critical point, is that, so let's, let's take her analogy. She wants to say that whereas the Okabist does not really address the issue direct on the way that Thomas would, if I marry Thomism with Okamism and take Okam's intuition that propositions about God's knowledge are not really about the past, and I take the Thomas view that God knows not because he sees what's going to occur in the future by seeing the future, but because he sees it in himself. And so for God, she wants to assert, the proposition, I go to Oregon next Saturday, has the very same truth value as I do not go to Oregon next Saturday. They're both reflected equally in God's simple essence because both are possible if I'm free, and he sees them both in his essence equally. And so what she wants to say is that both I go to Oregon next Saturday and I don't go to Oregon next Saturday are equally in God's essence. So there is no truth value that is distinguished, so it's consistent with God's foreknowledge. The problem is obvious, however. How does God know whether I'm going to Oregon next Saturday or I'm not going to Oregon next Saturday if both are equally reflected in his essence? It seems that he doesn't have enough information to know what the future is actually going to be. He only knows what the possibilities about the future are. And so Zagzebski's theory would in fact remove God's knowledge from partaking of the necessity of the past by marrying Thomism and Okamism together. What it won't do is give us an adequate explanation as to how God could possibly know what the future is, 
And it's therefore not really a solution because her description of how God knows is not going to be adequate to actually address the foreknowledge issue because it's not a foreknowledge issue. It's really just a mystery. All right, and then next you drive home the importance of the Mormon concept of God. And now it becomes clear why the Mormon concept of God makes a crucial difference in the discussion of whether God's past beliefs are past events and therefore beyond anyone's power to alter. For Mormonism unabashedly claims that God the Father and the Son are persons in the fullest sense of the word, though not merely mortals like us. So the next quote seems to me, so when you wrote this in the book, it seems to me that the debate ultimately turns on whether God's having a belief is relevantly similar to humans having beliefs. That is, if God is utterly unique so that our concept of what it is for a person to have a belief at a time does not apply to God, then God's beliefs or non-propositional knowledge cannot be shown to be hard, the hard facts, because we don't know what it means to say that God has beliefs at a certain time. If, on the other hand, God is a member of a kind, then his beliefs are like the beliefs of the other members of that kind. And you quote Joseph Smith here to drive home the Mormon concept on this. He says, this is from the King Follett Discourse, says, What kind of a being is God? Ask yourselves. I will show you what kind of a being God was in the beginning. First, God sits enthroned and is a man like one of yourselves. That is the great secret. If the veil were rent today and the great God who holds the world in its sphere or its orbit, the planets, if you were to see him today, you would see him in all the person image, the very form of man, for man was created in the very fashion of God. So that's just making a quote showing that God is the same kind, and that's what we've talked about unique in Mormonism, that we are the same kind as God, and therefore having a past belief is going to be the same kind of thing that it is for us. Right. So, at least in Mormonism, foreknowledge and free will can't be compatible. But then I make an observation, and I think this is really crucial. Christianity is based upon the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was both fully man and fully God. He has to be categorized as we are, because that's exactly what Christianity is bedrock, bottom line, grounded in. And so, when Jesus utters prophecies, when Jesus says, look, Peter, you're going to deny me thrice, that prophecy, if Jesus is infallible and he makes infallible statements about the future, you're not going to be able to escape the fact that those are historical events. They are statements about the future that are made in the past relative to what occurs in the future. And therefore, you can't solve this problem of prophecy by adopting the alchemist approach. Moreover, it seems to me that Christianity is stuck with the view that at least one member of the Godhead who is omniscient is relevantly similar to being a human being. In fact, that's what all of the creedal statements say. And so it seems to me that any doctrine that is asserting that God is so different from us, he can't be considered to be a person like us, is fundamentally denying the most essential bedrock belief about Christianity. So I don't think this is a very good way out for Christians either. All right, very good points. Now, if you and Jake want to talk about the next section, which is titled Hard Facts as Intrinsic Properties of Past Events. All right, and you start by suggesting that we understand that properties are really possessed by events at past times in terms of intrinsic or real properties possessed by events at past times. So if you could just go a little bit into what exactly is intrinsic versus extrinsic properties and what do they mean for the discussion? So we can say that Socrates was shorter than Theotetus, okay? Theotetus being another Greek. But being taller than or shorter than Theotetus are not intrinsic properties about Theotetus. They're actually intrinsic properties about Socrates. The fact is that being taller than or shorter than are external properties because they compare something external to Theotetus to him. There doesn't need to be any change in Theotetus. So when Socrates was young, he was shorter than Theotetus, but when he became a man, he was taller than Theotetus. It doesn't mean Theotetus grew or didn't grow. It means Socrates did. So the changes in Socrates, not in Theotetus. So being taller than or shorter than are external properties with respect to Theotetus. So what we're making a distinction about here is that an intrinsic property is an actual real property of something or someone, whereas an extrinsic property is not. So when we look at a proposition, for example, we look at the proposition that are about beliefs in the past about future events. We're talking about those kinds of propositions, propositions that have both a past fact about them and that entail something about the future. How do we determine what they are? If it's something that is not about God's intrinsic properties, okay, so a fact can be determined to be really about the past if it has an intrinsic property 
of an event identified in the past relatted, there's always a relation between a past event and a future event when we have these kinds of propositions. And I'll call them the past relata because they're related to each other in this way, and a future relata. So if we have the proposition that Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address on 19 November 1863, then, for example, the Gettysburg Address possesses the intrinsic properties of Lincoln having existed, Lincoln being present in Gettysburg in 1863, Lincoln having delivered the Gettysburg in 1863, and so forth. It also entails the propositions that a human being existed, a world existed, and so forth. But the fact that Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address is something that's etched into history. You can't change it. If you don't believe me, go to Washington, D.C., and you'll see the Gettysburg Address etched into stone. It's etched in stone. And so the property, the, the fact that Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address is now truly fixed. Okay, can't be done. However, merely extrinsic properties are possessed by events of past times can be changed without altering the past history. The fact that the event of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address possesses the property of 1863 of having been delivered 138 years before I wrote the book. The property having been delivered 138 years before I wrote the book expresses an extrinsic property that's possessed by Lincoln. Lincoln has this extrinsic property of having this relation to me of having delivered this address 138 years before I wrote the book. Were I to refrain from writing the words in 2001 when I wrote them, there wouldn't be any change in the intrinsic properties possessed by Lincoln's having delivered the Gettysburg Address in the past. So what I do is I come up with a criteria to determine what's truly about the past and what's about the future. I call it FP, for fixed past. All intrinsic properties of past events or agents identified in the past relata of a past-future relational proposition are unchangeable and fixed. And so all propositions of this nature that talk about the truth value of when something occurred in relation to the past is a past-future relational proposition. And so what I'm saying is, if there's an intrinsic property of a past event that we can identify in that kind of a proposition, then that past event is in fact historical and it can't be changed. And so we go back and look at the kinds of propositions that we were involved with and it turns out that it categorizes these propositions correctly according to our intuitions. And so if I talk about God's past, there's a past event that has an intrinsic property. God believed in 1900 that I would write the book in 2001. There's a past event. God's believing is a fact. It took place in 1900. In fact, he held that belief. The fact that he held that belief is a fixed fact. It can't be changed. Given my criteria, because there's an intrinsic property in the past relata of this past-future relational proposition, it turns out that it's a fixed fact, even though it talks about something that will occur and is entailed by something that will occur in the future. And it works with all the propositions. Aaron, having delivered an address in 2000, see if that's when he existed, I don't know, but that's a fixed fact. And on the criteria, it gets categorized as a fixed fact. That I write a book exactly 138 years after Martin Luther was born turns out not to be a fixed fact because there's no intrinsic past fact involved, no past properties that have changed if I change the future relata. So this criteria turns out to be an adequate criteria, and on it, God's past beliefs turn out to be hard facts. They turn out to be fixed and therefore necessary. And so I believe I've identified a criteria that properly categorizes propositions, and it turns out that premise B4 remains valid because it is a hard fact about the past that can't be changed. Okay. And what you've been explaining is the fixed intrinsic properties principle that you've termed. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I've got another principle, the fixed intrinsic properties principle, and that is this. If it's true that an agent were to perform an action at a certain time in the future, and some event which possessed an intrinsic property at some prior time would not have possessed that property at the prior time, then it's not in anyone's power to change the fact that it had that intrinsic property at the prior time. And that's FIPP. It's another principle that I came up with. Turns out it's important because FIPP is going to be important to the next discussion we have about whether or not God's timelessness can fix the problem. Right. And just kind of summing up, you said that FIPP, or the Fixed Intrinsic Properties Principle, adequately captures the distinction between what is really about the past and God's beliefs are fixed and not within the power of anyone to change on the assumption of infallible knowledge. So like you said, the premise before, 
then seems to accurately portray God's past beliefs as partaking in a necessity of the past. Right. So given the way that we develop this, and turns out that the criteria that are used the properly categorized propositions about being either truly about the past or not truly about the past, turns out if we come up with an adequate criteria, then God's knowledge is going to be fixed. And so the argument is vindicated. Well, like you said, now that we have that fixed intrinsic properties principle, that plays a big role in the next part of timelessness and does it resolve the incompatibility. All right, so I've kind of been, at least in our past chapters, and talking about thinking about this particular item too. Not that we believe in a timeless God, but for those that do, this seems to be a big problem. Like Aquinas argues, like, well, here's the thing. If you understand God is timeless, then God didn't know anything at T1 or a certain time. Because God's knowing is not temporarily located. He's not in human history. He's outside of time completely. So, indeed, our little person rockets as if he has already robbed or repented, died, and sits exalted beside God in the timeless eternal now, which is kind of a difficult notion. But rather than that solving anything, you're trying to say, oh, well, that historical fact that you're trying to point out is the thing entailing that there's no other alternative. And we're saying, oh, well, that's not true. But Alvin Plandinga, a philosopher we've talked about before, makes a very good point. He's like, well, okay, cool, but for those of us who are in time, all it means is that God knows timelessly that the person, that guy Rock will rob the 7-Eleven at a certain time, was true at every single time prior to that particular time that it happened. So his timeless knowledge was a historical fact for everyone in history, regardless of whether God is in history himself or not. Yeah, what he wants to say is given the omnitemporality of truth, basically what he adopts is a form of fatalism, it seems to me, saying that, well, if there's a truth value about what God's knowledge is and whether or not the future proposition is true, unless you're going to adopt fatalism, then you've got to agree that this argument doesn't work. Yeah, it just doesn't really change anything if God is outside of time. Let's put it this way. What timelessness does, it removes God from the arena of time, and God being in time and having history is essential to argument before. Because if God is not in time, then it removes the past necessity on which the argument is based. And so God doesn't hold a belief at any time. He doesn't hold a belief in the past. He doesn't hold it in the present. But Plantinga thinks that we can recreate the argument just saying that, well, there's still a truth value at a time. God knew in 1900 relative to people who were in time, and therefore the argument goes through. I think Planta goes wrong. I think removing God from time does change the problem very significantly. If God isn't located in time, then I don't believe his beliefs are historical events located in time. God has just always known timelessly. He is known atemporally or outside of time. And therefore, I think the planet is wrong about saying that, well, even if God didn't know it at a time, people still existed in time, and therefore the problem can be restated. That just isn't true. I think timelessness modifies the problem significantly. Well, go more into that then, because I was not understanding that part. Remember, the reason that the past necessity is incompatible with libertarian free will is that our only one future is consistent with the past that occurred in which God knew something. So if we remove God out of time, it seems that there's no past necessity. The problem with timelessness isn't past necessity, it's another kind of necessity. It doesn't have to be past necessity to show that we wouldn't be free. There could be another type of necessity, and if God is outside of time, then what we really have is a kind of necessity that follows from God's immutability. That is, if God is outside of time, he's immutable in the strongest sense possible. There can't be a before or after there can't be any change in God. The fact that he believes something is absolutely unchangeable in the strongest sense. But if what God believes is absolutely unchangeable, then the fact that he believes timelessly that I am going to rob the 7-Eleven tomorrow is also unchangeable because of the necessity of God's immutability. What that means is I can recreate the argument by using a different principle than past necessity. And instead of using the past necessity and premise before, I would use the immutability and necessity of God's essential properties to underwrite a different kind of necessity. And so I would replace the principle with this. If it is true that a temporal agent A were to perform an action X at a time T, and some individual S who immutably possesses an intrinsic property would not possess that property 
then A does not have the power to do X. In other words, if I have the power to both rob the 7-Eleven tomorrow and refrain from robbing the 7-Eleven tomorrow, and God timelessly believes that I am going to rob the 7-Eleven, I would have to be able to change the fact that God holds that belief timelessly. But clearly, I don't have that kind of power. God's infallible, immutable beliefs can't be changed at all, whether they're timeless or not. The problem isn't past necessity here. It's the necessity of immutability in telling God's intrinsic essential properties. And so we come up with a different kind of necessity until by God's essential properties in place of the past necessity, but it is inconsistent with libertarian free will as past necessity. So the problem can't be solved by removing God from time. It's basically like whatever existence is, is burned onto like a DVD, and God has that DVD, and we're just running through it right now, and we're relating to it somewhere on there, but it's already happened. Like you said, it's even a harder fact than if it was a past necessity. It's like, it's literally already happened, and so... Well, it hasn't already happened from God's perspective. Well, it's, it's happening right now from God's perspective. It's, everything's right now, right? Let me give you an analogy. If you're looking at somebody, and it's true that you're watching somebody rob the 7-Eleven, they can't change the fact that you're watching them rob the 7-Eleven if it's true that you're watching them. But they could change it simply by refraining from robbing the 7-Eleven at any time, right? They could just change it in the present. But the present knowledge doesn't seem to be a problem, even though it seems to be just as fixed as the past in some sense. It's given that if you're seeing somebody do something, then in fact you're seeing somebody do something. The difference is that what is in the present doesn't have any of the necessity of the past. And so they would want to say, well, look, God sees us just as if though it's the present now. And merely watching you do something doesn't take your freedom away. So why would God watching you do something in his timeless eternity be inconsistent with your free will? Because my watching you do it isn't inconsistent with your free will. And the answer is that the beliefs I hold are not immutable. They could be changed at any moment. The fact that I hold this belief could be wrong and it could be changed. But if God is immutable and infallible in his timeless eternity, the fact that he holds this belief is just as fixed. In fact, it's more fixed. (laughs) even the past, because it is an immutable reality in God's necessity. And so it's this type of necessity now that underwrites the argument. All right, and then just to wrap up, try to go over these last little things quickly, but there's another section that talks about multiple past compatibilists. So, Jake, if you want to take us through that. Thomas Flint is the one who comes up with his view. He argues that God's mental knowledge is brought about by agents who have counterfactual power over the past. However, this power over the past is not limited to bringing about the actual past, for he claims that persons also possess the power to alter the past so that it never happened. Thus, the past is not fixed. And then uh, he goes further on to explain, taking the case of Christ's prophesying power of Peter's betrayal as an example. He says, at the time when Peter issues his denials, the history of the world already includes Jesus having foretold the denials. This is a fact about the past which has already had causal consequences. That is, that Peter has a memory of Jesus having uttered these words. Yet there is something that Peter is to do freely, namely not deny Jesus, such that were he to do it, Jesus would have never foretold these denials, assuming, of course, that Jesus could not be mistaken on such a matter in being divine. So Christ's prophesying the denials is not a fixed fact about the past, despite the clear causal consequences of that act of prophesying. What do right. you make of it? <laughs> well, really what Tom Flint's position seems to entail is that there's a past that is consistent with Peter denying Christ, and there's also an actual past that's consistent with him denying Christ. And both of these pasts have to be possible in the sense that both could be equally real. Because if I did something different, then that, that past would be real instead of the one that is. What that entails is there have to be multiple pasts that are actual. In fact, it entails universal possibilism, the view that all actual worlds are equally real. In possible world semantics, only the actual world is actual and all the other worlds are possible. But in universal possibilism, every single possible world is itself actual. <laughs> okay, Both worlds, the world where I rob the 7-Eleven tomorrow and the world where I don't rob the 7-Eleven tomorrow, are equally actual. And the world where I was born in 1957 and I wasn't born in 1957 are equally actual as well. But what this requires is that we have a view of reality where we deny the excluded middle about propositions. In fact, we have to deny virtually everything we think we know about reality. The question is, is this something that we're required to 
adopt given scientific knowledge? And the answer is clearly not. <laughs> because, for instance, the fact that I chose to go to college precluded me from going back and traveling the world. And there is no world where I go and travel the world. It was a possible world up until the point that I actually went to college instead of traveling the world at that point. I can't change the fact that during that period of my life, I was in college rather than traveling the world. It's just a given fact. If you believe that there's actually a world where I, in fact, traveled the world, as well as one where I didn't travel the world, then we have to give up our most basic foundational beliefs about the nature of reality. Now, some people would say, well, theory of relativity is strange, quantum theory is strange, and this may be strange, but, you know, it's possible that everything is actual. It's called actual possibilism. <laughs> but how do you make sense of that? I mean, you've got to give up every law of logic about statements that clearly do have a definitive truth value. And so the law of the excluded middle, the law of bivalence, every law of logic has to give way. And so what we have is a world like in Back to the Future, where I go back to the past and begin to erase the fact that I ever existed. I mean, even that is a single actual timeline, because it recognizes if there's an actuality about whether or not Marty's parents got together, and they don't get together, then Marty doesn't exist. And what he's doing now is changing the fact that his parents got together. But there's only one reality. He can't both exist and not exist. Instead, we have to change back to the future so that, yeah, Marty's parents didn't get together. That's real. His parents got together and Marty exists. That's also real. So there are innumerable actual worlds where I don't exist, innumerable actual worlds where I do. And go to every single branch where you could have made a different choice and all of the consequences of all those choices, all of those worlds are actual too. I don't know how to make sense of any of that. It's not just you either. It's everybody's choice, and not just humans. Every possible thing that could have ever possibly happened. Every logical possibility is realized. I don't know that we can make any sense of that kind of an assertion. To me, it's quite nonsensical. But, you know, people who are given to flights of fantasy and to uh, giving up their grasp on reality might want to adopt that view. Let me ask you this, because in a past podcast, you stated very clearly, you said, yeah, well, we live in a very large multiverse. So you believe in a multiverse. So what do you understand multiverse to mean if you do believe that? Multiverse is something quite different than universal possibilism. The multiverse is the notion that the initial constants that define the laws that presently exist in our universe are not necessary. If the initial constants have been different, then we would have a different type of universe if it had even the capacity of existing beyond a second or three seconds or whatever. The quantum equations predict that the initial constants that existed at the beginning of our universe aren't necessary. We could have different initial constants. And given the assumption that our universe was drawn out by the energy of the vacuum and that you have a false vacuum that collapses and a new universe that is created essentially as a quantum event. And so you have different initial constants. Almost all universes can't exist past the blink of the smallest nanosecond possible. But some universes can. Some can exist two seconds, some can exist three seconds, some might even exist for a very long time, but they would have different laws. Given the predictions, there are all of these actual universes that are spatial-temporally disassociated from ours in the sense that we cannot access them. We don't have any way of causally interacting. But there may be such spatial temporal realities that arose at any given temporal epoch, but we could never have any knowledge of them. There can't be any experimental knowledge of them, only theoretical knowledge of them. So that's a very different proposition about the nature of universes and initial constants and natural laws than asserting that every logical possibility is actually not merely possible, but actual. Yeah, that's just the point I wanted to have you make. So there's a distinction between what science believes of there just being different universes with different laws, so we can't exactly categorize them, and they can come in and out of existence and exist for any period of time. So that's like, that scientific question, but what we're talking about is strictly a philosophical question that science can't answer because it can't be falsified. And if something can't be falsified, it can't really be a scientific principle. It's more in the philosophical realm. Right. On the other hand, it would be a great book where there are all these different versions of me where in one version, I go to the point in my life where I make a certain choice and I make a different choice and there's a branch. There are now two of me. And one lives the consequences of the choice that I made and the other one lives different consequences of a different choice made. And then they make a choice in the next moment and it goes into four and the next moment and it goes into 60 and the next moment it goes, you know, 64. So you get this geometric branching. 
where pretty soon you've got, you know, it's not an infinite number, but it's such a large number that it's, you know, ridiculously impossible to even conceive. That hopefully, hopefully it'd be a short film then. <laughs> well, actually it'd be a film that would never end. Well, I'm just meaning that to be able to have a human comprehend what's on the screen with all the possible differences that could take place over a short period of time, I think it would take probably about two minutes for there to be so much on the screen that you couldn't even comprehend it anymore. Just because we can't comprehend it doesn't mean it's not so. I mean, I don't comprehend the wave particle duality in quantum physics either, but that doesn't make it not so. But the bottom line is that it seems to be mere science fiction. There's no real scientific predictive power to it. On the other hand, it seems that like it would be a very neat plan. I mean, if you're God and imagine you die and you go and you say, look, I, I really screwed up in that life. I made this key decision that changed the rest of my life. Would you give me an opportunity to go back and make a different decision? I'd like to see how life goes if I make a different decision at that point, or at least have the opportunity to make that different decision and see how that turns out. And God says, well, you know, we've got an eternity. We've got plenty of time. I mean, there's no end to anything. We're just sitting here kind of being amused by all the different possibilities. Why don't we see how that works out? <laughs> it, well, you know, a, a movie that kind of explored it, I mean, you're not seeing all the different realities at the same time, but the butterfly effect kind of, He's able to, by reading his journal, go back to different points in his life and then make a different decision. And then you see how that plays out when he goes back to the future point of where he was at. And he's like, what? Everything's changed. Yeah, well, a better one is the Tom Cruise movie where you've got an invasion and he goes back and relives and learns how to get around the aliens who kill him every single time. And he learns how to survive. And, and Edge of Tomorrow. Yep. Yeah, Edge Everything. of Tomorrow. And so you have sequel, all of by the way. <laughs> oh, are they? Well, yep. I'm interested. I thought it was an e-movie. All right. Well, let's sum this up. So, Well, there's one final question that comes up with these multiple past compatibilists. It, so what is it that makes human action necessary if the necessity isn't caused by God's foreknowledge itself? Yeah, and, and the answer is that it's the nature of the world that we have to live in. The nature of the world has to be fixed if God can have foreknowledge. And so I issue this challenge. I'll tell you, I, I don't know what it is that makes it so that we can't do something differently, but I can give an argument that shows that it's the case. But my challenge is, if you'll explain to me how you believe that God knows the future, I will show to you the concrete reason that your action cannot be consistent with libertarian free will if you explain to me a way that you believe God knows the future infallibly. Every single model you can give me, I can show, I believe, is incompatible with free will. So... It seems to me that that's the logically prior requirement of a person who's going to issue that challenge. All right. And then the, the next thing we move on to is you then bring up, well, is it possible then to reject the premise B1 without rejecting premise B2? And that'll be for next time, but just give us a refresher on what B1 and B2 are. Well, I'm the temporality of truth, right? So what we're going to be talking about now is the nature of God's knowledge and whether or not there's a truth value to the propositions about what God knows in the future. It asks this question, does God have to know the future in order to be divine and to be God and to be worthy of worship? So we're going to explore what would it be like if we look at different ways that God relates to the future with the open possibility maybe he could still be God and divine even though he doesn't have infallible foreknowledge. Okay, so yeah, we'll do that next time. Um, one little thing at the end here I wanted to say is on our different pages I've gotten some good feedback and other people that say, you know, like, I like this discussion, even though maybe I don't agree with the conclusions. It's really fun. And I just want to point out that is the goal of this book, I assume, as well as this podcast. We're not trying to convince everyone that these views expressed are the only way you can view things. The goal is to have you think through all these different issues and examine your beliefs about them and to see if it holds up to some pretty intense scrutiny and if you do disagree, my goal is just so that you would know why you disagree and then have a well-thought-out counter to any of the views that we bring up here that you don't agree with. And that's my goal. It's not necessarily to make everyone believe the same thing as what my dad wrote in his book. It's to have people think through these things, and if they do disagree, then hopefully you can see that, well, this has been deeply thought about, and I need to at least do my homework. And instead of just saying, I don't know, I just believe this, to at least think through it so that you can also come to understand why you believe what you believe. Yeah, and let me issue an invitation in that regard, and that is, look, if you disagree with the conclusion, you know, give us the benefits of your thinking as to why you disagree and what the basis is and how you thought it through differently so that we could interact 
I've been at pains to point out that there are a lot of very bright people who disagree with the arguments that I'm giving here and who give different arguments. I have the greatest respect for them. They're very fine philosophers, top drawer philosophers, and they don't all agree with me. And so it would be arrogant on my part to think that the arguments I'm giving are so compelling that any rational person on pain of giving up their epistemic integrity would have to agree with me. That's just not the way that it is in philosophy. I've given, I believe, strong reasons for coming to the conclusions I have, but if you come to a different conclusion, let us know why, let us interact, and if you've got a better view, tell us why. All right, great, and that will close us out for this time, so thanks for joining me again. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.